From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone with an hour about alcohol. As in spirits, sauce, swill, grog, vino, blanc, suds, bubbles, booze. A wee dram, the devil's blue. We condemn it. They want your sweet, innocent girls to take the booze so they can be enticed into honky-tonks by slick-haired vultures who prey on the flower of American womanhood. Alcohol must go. Revel in it. Throughout the Middle Ages, drunkenness was so common, it was unnoticed. They called it the Middle Ages because no one was able to walk home unless they were between two other fellows. I was the middle guy. We fear it. It goes by the nicknames Blackout in a Can and Liquid Cocaine. is the equivalent of four beers, a Red Bull, and a shot of espresso. The caffeine masks the alcohol, creating what the FDA calls wide-awake drunks. You can get very drunk, very fast, very cheaply. Maggie? Very scary. We need it. My fur coat so low, low, ain't it cold? But I'm not gonna holler, cause I still got a dollar. And when I get low, oh, I get high. When I get low, oh, I get high. Alcohol has been humanity's companion through good times and ill even before we were human. Primates are attracted to ethanol. In fact, the drunken monkey hypothesis proposed by Dr. Robert Dudley at Berkeley suggests that the attraction may once have been an evolutionary advantage. Ethanol leads the nose to overripe fruit rich in calories, as is ethanol itself. So, in a short life of scarcity, it's actually nutritious. But in a long life of abundance potentially ruinous. We still argue about it. Sometimes the same arguments the ancients, maybe even the monkeys, had. It's that duality that attracted Ian Gately, the author of Drink, A Cultural History of Alcohol. When I looked at the subject, what struck me most was this sort of Jekyll and Hyde aspects of alcohol. And in fact, the Greek god of wine, Dionysus, had exactly those two aspects to his character. He could be loving, and he was the patron of the theatre and of many of the arts. Yet, at the same time, he could be quite unpredictable, too, in his rage and violence. The reference to alcohol in Gilgamesh, possibly the oldest literary work in existence, is when Gilgamesh, the king of a Mesopotamian city, wanted to team up with a wild man named Enkidu, They civilized Enkidu by giving him beer. His heart grew light, his face glowed, and he sang out with joy. He washed, he rubbed sweet oil into his skin, and became fully human. I notice through your book that beer is the working man's drink and wine that of the elite or the effete. And this goes back to the ancient Egyptians where probably the pyramids were built by seriously drunk people. Yes, they had a ration of one and a third gallons of beer per day. And this might have been as strong as 5%. Now, you know, if I was to drink that much beer in the hot sun whilst doing hard labor, I can't see how it wouldn't get me drunk. 
and beer, yes, is usually the working man or woman's drink. And wine, I mean, in the case of the Egyptians, they didn't really grow their own, so it was an imported luxury. And it was a tool for discrimination as much as anything else. You know, if you were the pharaoh, then you would have the best wine. Some things never change. I bet the <laughs> wine experts of the day couldn't tell the expensive wine from the cheap wine in a blind test, but never mind that. Well, one wonders, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Greeks also favored wine. Poets and playwrights, politicians. You quote the epic poet Peneasus, who wrote, Wine is like fire and aid and sweet relief, wards off all ills and comforts every grief. Wine can of every feast the joys enhance, it kindles soft desire, it leads the dance. They really did see it as not simply a social lubricant, but also as inspiration. They believed that when people were engaging in oratory, that they really had to have a drink first, and that people who didn't drink were therefore suspect because they weren't revealing their true feelings. I mean, it was Demosthenes was one of the most famous orators of ancient Athens, and yet because he was a water drinker, people always rather doubted him. <laughs> Christians actually started with a fairly liberal attitude towards alcohol, at least in the earliest holy books. And it's interesting, I think, that in both the Old and New Testament, there's very little in the way of a sort of concrete description of what heaven will be like. But in both, there will be wine there. Wine and alcohol was, was omnipresent, both in, in Judaism and Christianity. Jesus, obviously, one of his first miracles is to convert water into wine. And having declared at the Last Supper that this is my body, this is my blood, the act of transubstantiation being an important part of Christian worship thereafter. So Aristotle had mm -hmm. tried to distill wine into a pure spirit way back in the 4th century BC, but he couldn't figure out how. It's a more delicate art than I think is commonly realized. And ultimately perfected in a part of the world we've associated with being dogmatically opposed to alcohol, the Muslim world. That's absolutely right. I mean, there's a reasonably explicit ban in the Quran against strong drink. And yet they were also masters of, of science for the time. I mean, so there's Jebba in the 8th century, who's really the father of chemistry. You know, he sat down to classify substances and work out a little more about the nature of things. Al-Razi, a century later, found a substance which he called alcohol, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is obviously the root of our word alcohol. Next to the Muslims, probably the strictest drinking culture that you described was that of the Aztecs. This seems to be the first civilization to impose a drinking age. That's right. As far as we can judge from the accounts of the conquistadores, they uh, had a minimum drinking age of 50 for both men and women. And if you violated the drinking laws... You could be stoned to death. There were, as ever, exceptions. So once again, it seems that the elite had rather freer access to alcohol. And warriors, too, were allowed to drink, and they seemed to have um, troughs of pulque outside some other temples. Pulque being the uh, fermented sap of the agave plant. That's correct. And the preparation of which was highly ceremonial. Like the people responsible for preparing it had to forswear sex for a few days and isolate themselves from other people. And once it was ready, it had to be drunk very quickly. Mm -hmm. One of the conquistadores is recorded as saying, you know, there's no smell. Even a dead dog or a bomb going off won't clear a street quite as quickly as <laughs> off pulque. <laughs> 
Now, one thing that was fascinating to me and related to the ceremony is among the exceptions, you talk about the warriors and some of the elites, but also it seems as if your astrological chart marked you as a rabbit you had to drink. Yes, it, it does appear that some people were literally cursed by the zodiac. Pulque was protected by the 400 moon rabbit gods of Pulque. And one sign of the Aztec zodiac known as two rabbits. So if you were born under that, you were expected to be, if not prone, then actually just cursed to be a drunk. And people born under that sign were obviously allowed to drink, but they were vilified and they were expected to look, you know, like sort of sad and angry drunks. <laughs> sort of staggering around, badly dressed and, you know, cursed by everyone. And you observed that every time spirits were introduced into a society for the first time, it caused destruction until people figured out how to control it. That's right. It instantly had a very adverse effect on the populations. And we see this time and time again. We see it in Germany where they're doing brandy burnt wine. And, you know, at first they're saying, oh, this is a marvellous elixir. It cures everything. You know, gonorrhea, syphilis constipation, you know, <laughs> and madness, madness in dogs, <laughs> barrenness in women. I mean, some of the lists are simply ridiculous. But you also begin to see, you know, people suddenly dying from drink, which people weren't used to. The idea that someone could just simply drink a pint and then drop dead was pretty unusual to them. As in, in the 1700s, the London gin craze you wrote that in 1723, statistics suggested that every man, woman, and child in London knocked back more than a pint of gin per week. The impact was obviously shocking levels of public drunkenness in the capital. That's right. Even cultures which had really a very long history of drinking, their culture didn't protect them against something which was so much stronger than what they were used to. So let's shift to the New World. You note that the Indian name from which we derive the name Manhattan comes from uh, a bibulous encounter with uh, Henry Hudson back in 1609. That's right. I mean, one of the recordings of it was the place where we got drunk together. Reading your book, you get the sense that there are two arguments that have been made century after century against or for drinking alcohol. One centers on the health benefits, or lack thereof, and the other centers on the morality of it, or lack thereof. As you wrote, the prohibitionists in the U.S., the early ones, likened drinking to a moral failing, like slavery. Those are the two threads. It's the Jekyll and Hyde. And today, a lot of surveys come out showing that moderate drinking of alcohol is good for you. And yet, on the other side of the coin, you've got excessive drinking is, without doubt, very bad for you. I and mean, not just for you, but the people who surround you. Should we not always have a clarity of mind which is unfuddled by the influence of alcohol? But then you could balance that with a resounding yes, that it's actually part of our nature, like eating meat. We are human because we drink alcohol. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Ian Gately is the author of Drink, A Cultural History of Alcohol. This is On The Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? 
Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So we'll pick up and extend Ian Gately's Jekyll and Hyde idea here by observing that since civilization's dawn, we've viewed the transmogrification of grain or the grape as both Mother Nature's miracle elixir and deadly decoction. Our source of creative inspiration and moral impairment, our Shiva. Today, this mercurial relationship often plays out on the news, where we learn that red wine will kill us. Wine, even a little bit of alcohol, can actually increase the risk of breast cancer. Or save us. Ladies, drink your red wine. It could prevent breast cancer. Or kill us. I probably told you hundreds of times that red wine is good for your heart. But recent news is raising questions. Or save us. It'll help you with good cholesterol. Right. It lowers blood pressure, lowers stress, and overall just has many, many health benefits. Or maybe not. Now, it might be good to relax at the end of the day, but it is not good for lowering your blood pressure. Screw it. New studies suggest that red wine is exercise in a bottle. That the fruit of the vine, fermented, could actually be medicinal is a tempting yet potentially dangerous conclusion. Robert Taylor, assistant managing editor at Wine Spectator, tracked that notion back to its birthplace, a 60-minute special from 1991. Well, the 60-minute piece couldn't have come out at a more perfect time for the wine industry, really. In the 80s, America was obsessed with fitness. I think every house probably had a Jane Fonda VHS tape. ESPN's daytime bread and butter was aerobic shows and weightlifting shows. The 80s were a tough time for wine, especially red wine. Most people drank white wine, a lot of Pinot Grigio. Just because it's easy to drink. Sure. It's not uh, so complex or chewy. No, <laughs> it goes down easy. <laughs> and you also had the rise of mothers against drunk driving at the time who, you know, were very effective in changing the discussion over alcohol and the safety of children and anyone on the road. Absolutely. The Reagan era war on drugs and alcohol had a very significant impact on the culture. So November 1991, this piece airs on 60 Minutes. There has been for years the belief by doctors in many countries that alcohol, in particular red wine, reduces the risk of heart disease. Now it's been all but confirmed. It was viewed by nearly 22 million households. It was really one of 60 Minutes' most popular segments at the time. They revisited it frequently. Morley Safer certainly was enthusiastic about it. He loved red wine. The impact on wine sales in America was immediate. In 1992, red wine sales rose 39% in the U.S., Wow. And they maintained that popularity. To this day. To this day. Now, some of the assertions in the piece are pretty wild, like this one. A moderate intake of alcohol prevents heart disease by 50%. I mean, this is... 50%? 50%. 50%. 
Who is this guy making these assertions? <laughs> well, Serge Renaud was really a maverick at the time. He was a French-Canadian medical researcher and scientist who moved from Bordeaux to Canada at age 20 when he was struck by the incidence of coronary heart disease in North America versus that in France, where people ate so much more fat. You know, the stereotype of the French just eating cheese and butter and foie gras all day long and drinking wine and smoking cigarettes, and yet they had a significantly lower instance of coronary heart disease. And he came up with the idea of, quote, the French paradox. Well, he didn't coin the term, but he is considered the father of the French paradox, and he was the first doctor to examine this relationship and postulate that red wine was the key. And his findings led to a groundswell of scientific research, which continues to this day. Decreased impacts of aging, better heart health. There's so many benefits that have been associated with moderate wine consumption since that time. In the mid-90s, your magazine put a doctor on the cover with the headline, Toasting a Long Life. We did. So did it seem like the relationship with alcohol and health at that point was settled? Settled? I would say that it was beginning to become a reality. We have a wonderful clip from a tribute to Morley Safer after he died, given by the wine enthusiast. After that story ran, sales of red wine exploded by more than 40%, jump-starting the sale of wine to decades to come. So let's raise a glass in memory of the TV journalist Morley Safer. Hey, he unraveled the French paradox. May you rest in peace and thank you. Morley did a lot for the wine community. He followed up on that 1991 report in 2008 with a report on resveratrol, which really seems to be the most promising of the polyphenols found in wine. Mm -hmm. The original 60 Minutes piece portrays France as the ideal place where the cultural relationship with wine leads to good health. And I'm wondering, do the French media talk about alcohol in the same way? Well, the French media can't. Um, <laughs> they can't. What do you mean? Well, the great irony of what was happening here in the United States in 1991 is that in France, while coronary heart disease rates were low, alcohol-related deaths were quite high, far higher than here in the U.S., then and now. That's including cirrhosis, liver failure, uh, as well as drunk driving fatalities. In fact, even today... In France, there are estimated to be approximately 50,000 alcohol-related deaths a year, and that's in a country of 67 million. Here in the U.S., that number is 88,000 alcohol-related deaths, and that's in a country of 323 million. Hmm. So the instance in France is one per about 1,300, whereas here in the U.S., it's one per about 3,600. So in 1991, trying to address these issues... In France, they passed what is known as the Evin Law. 1991. 1991. The, the same year that the 60 Minutes Absolutely. piece Absolutely. And what that did was prohibit alcohol advertising on television or in film, and it limited how alcohol could be advertised in print. In 2008, it restricted internet advertising for alcohol. One thing I thought was really fascinating is that advertisers were prohibited from correlating alcohol with happiness or alcohol with sex. And there was a, 
picture of a lovely blonde woman with a Mona Lisa smile on her face and a glass of red wine next to her. That's all. She isn't dressed sexy. She isn't lounging over the glass or a bottle or anything. And this was controversial. Absolutely. Which suggests, in a kind of screwed-up way, that a pretty woman can't be separated from sex. And one of them actually included a smile showing teeth. Was that an issue? That was, that was <laughs> among the issues. <laughs> Say you grew up in France under Evans' law, and then you show up in the United States. What would strike you about the advertising here? To arrive in the U.S. and see advertisements on television of young, healthy, beautiful people having a wonderful time consuming alcohol, that's 100% foreign. Anyone who saw the Super Bowl with the Yellowtail ad, the Australian wine brand, with an animatronic kangaroo named Brew and a model and yellowtail guy in his bright yellow suit. Hi. Hey. Uh, want to pet my roo? Sure, I'll pet your roo. The kangaroo is DJing at a party. They're enjoying red wine. You wouldn't see that in France. You couldn't see that in France. You couldn't see it for beer either. No. And you can barely turn around in the U.S. without bumping into a beer ad. No, which also can't happen in France. You wrote an obituary for Morley Safer when he died in 2016. Nearly 30 years later, do you think the story that he did still influences the way Americans talk about alcohol? 100%. I think to this day, people consider a glass or two of red wine a night to be preventative, especially for those at risk for cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. There's evidence now that moderate wine consumption may delay the onset of dementia. The key is moderate, and a lot of the medical community is hesitant to promote wine in this way because they also don't trust us to drink in moderation. That's the nanny state at work. No, <laughs> I mean, seriously, why should they? <laughs> right. <laughs> Even the cover of Wine Spectator that you mentioned in the mid-90s with the doctor on the cover, looking at it now, I can tell you that the amount of wine in that glass clearly appears to be more than five ounces. <laughs> That's a bit of an overpour in that glass. <laughs> and people do have a hard time sticking to the recommended daily dose. Do you happen to know if Evan's Law has been effective in reducing alcohol-related deaths in France? I know that it's been very effective in reducing alcohol consumption. In fact, wine consumption in particular has fallen by more than 50% in France since 1980. The anti-alcohol movement in France existed well before Evans Law. Mm -hmm. However, per capita consumption in France still dwarfs that of the U.S. In 1980, the French were drinking approximately 80 liters of wine per year per person of drinking age compared with about seven liters in the U.S. In the U.S., that number has been steadily rising up to about 11 liters per year compared with France, which is now down to 40 liters. <laughs> Still so, substantial. So significant changes in those habits in the U.S. and in France in opposite directions. That is a lot to chew over. I just wish we had a really good Cabernet to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Brooke, that would be day drinking. <laughs> Not recommended. 
Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Robert Taylor is assistant managing editor at Wine Spectator. A lot's changed since 1991, when Morally Safer consecrated our wine, as long as it's red. But since 2000, hospitals have seen a 50% increase in emergency room visits related to binge drinking. Considering the amount of deserved coverage the opioid crisis gets, it's worth noting that alcohol kills even more Americans each year. But whereas prescription pills and heroin often kill their victims quickly, death by drink can proceed by inches, taxing the body slowly, pawning off its mortal effects onto other ailments or addictions. Experts say drinking alcohol may contribute to almost 20,000 cancer deaths every year. It can lead to health issues including liver and heart disease and is responsible for 88,000 deaths in the U.S. each year. When it comes to helping Americans drink less, Hollywood and the media aren't helping. Addiction recovery in our popular culture is largely framed around the idea that a 12-step program like Alcoholics Anonymous is not only the best choice, it's the only choice. We spoke in 2015, and also this week, to Gabrielle Glazer, investigative journalist and author of Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How We Can Regain Control. She says that AA works far better on big and small screens than in real life. Researchers from the University of New Mexico analyzed data from dozens and dozens of different clinical trials. And what they found is that Alcoholics Anonymous ranked 38th in its efficacy among more than 50 different treatments. AA is hard to study since the members are anonymous and therefore impossible to track, right? Right. But... Every three years, AA comes out with its own triennial surveys. And the data that were released in the late 1990s, a gentleman named Don McIntyre analyzed them, and he published them in a peer-reviewed journal. Don McIntyre himself was in AA. And again, these are AA's own statistics that showed of 100 people who show up for a meeting on January 1st, only five will be there on December 31st. But that was back in 2000. Right. But AA has not released similar figures since that time because Mm -hmm. there was such an uproar. But I personally know so many people who have used the program and have done well. Exactly. But you also know a lot of people for whom yoga works really well. That's not science. That's anecdote. That's narrative. We in this country adore redemption narratives. And that is also AA's narrative. Early in the Bible of Alcoholics Anonymous, the book that was first written and published in 1939, here's what AA tells readers and potential members. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. If only eight out of a hundred succeed in this program... Why does it have such a fantastic rep? In the early 1940s, there was a Saturday Evening Post story about AA, and interest really took off throughout the 1940s and 50s. At dinner time, when everybody was watching the news, people who were members of AA were on local TV stations wearing Lone Ranger masks, describing their experiences. And it was very helpful for the organization, and it was no doubt helpful for people who needed help with their drinking. 
it was an important milestone culturally and clinically. But I think even more, the big screen, right? There's lots of movies that AA appears in. So we had the Thin Man movies in the 1930s where alcohol was just a giant caper. Myrna Loy at one point sits down at the table and says, I can drink as much as he can. Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. Yes, ma'am. A.A. hit Hollywood in 1945. There was a woman who was one of the first women in AA to become sober long-term. Her name was Marty Mann, and she was a PR genius. She worked at Marshall Fields in Chicago. She came from a very wealthy family. Her family lost money during the stock market crash. She had a decade of really wandering, and she drank way too much. And she found AA when she was in a sanitarium. A doctor gave her a book, the big book. And initially, she rejected it as being far too religious, but she had had a suicide attempt, and somehow she picked it up again and thought, okay, I'll try this. It worked for her, and she wanted to get the message out. She started reaching out to radio producers. She worked with newspapermen, television writers, movie producers, screenwriters, and it really, really worked. The Lost Weekend, starring Ray Milland. And that depicted a harrowing journey of this this guy who was a writer trying to fix his writer's block. Come on, I need that liquor. I want it and I'm going to get it, understand? I'm going to walk out of here with that quarter rye, one way or another. And that was written by a member of AA whose name was Charles Jackson to portray what happens in an alcoholic's downfall in a depiction on screen. And then AA itself was depicted in a movie called The Days of Wine and Roses. It featured Jack Lemmon, Jack Klugman, and Lee Remick. Jack Lemmon has a drinking problem. He brings his girlfriend slash wife along with him for the ride. She doesn't like the taste of alcohol, but he quickly produces Brandy Alexander's, which are sweet. Oh, no, thank you. No, no, that's all right. That's fine. But uh, That's special for you. It's chocolate. Go on. Oh, it's good. Mm. It is. They slide into this terrible descent of alcohol dependence themselves. And in that film, A.A. was a protagonist. It's got spooky music during the drunken scenes, out-of-control scenes. And then when the Jack Lemmon, Joe Clay character goes to A.A., suddenly there are these triumphant violins. Jack Klugman appears. He is the sponsor of Jack Lemmon and brings him to meetings. You see these meetings portrayed for the first time on the large screen. My name is blank, and I'm an alcoholic. It's easy to forget that enormous numbers of people went to the movies in the 1950s and 60s. So everybody was consuming that at the same time. And AA is still popping up on the big screen now? Okay, so there's this film called Flight, in which Denzel Washington plays a heroic pilot, and he has a drinking problem. There's a scene in which he does this daring move on a plane that he saves the passengers from pure destruction, but he had been drinking within the prescribed time limit. I think it's eight hours that the FAA requires your abstinent from alcohol. October 11th. October 11th, October 12th, and 13th, and 14th, I was intoxicated. I drank all of those days. I drank in excess. On the morning of the accident. I was drunk. I'm drunk now. I'm drunk right now. 
Miss Black. Because I'm an alcoholic. The term alcoholic, it got into popular use in the early 1940s with the publication of Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book. And it indicates that you are either an alcoholic or you're what Alcoholics Anonymous refers to as a normie. And if you're in the category of what we perceive to be alcoholics, the only way forward is with this faith and abstinence-based program that was developed in the 1930s. Now, for some people, they just have a genetic predisposition to full-out alcoholism, right? Yes. We know that there are about 100 genes that express themselves when people drink. People who have vulnerability to develop drinking problems have what's really considered to be a faulty shut-off valve. But you're saying it isn't just a binary proposition, that that's something that the media depictions seem to miss. Continue to miss. For example, the DSM, which is the psychiatric Bible, the one that came out in 1980, really distanced itself from the term alcoholic and alcoholism. The new terms were alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence. Researchers, clinicians, have been trying to get away from this word for almost 40 years. And yet, fast forward to the DSM-5, which came out in 2013. That came up with a term called alcohol use disorder, which is super clunky, but really denotes a spectrum of severity. You can be like the Denzel Washington character in Flight, drinks to excess every single night, drinks despite negative consequences. It's entirely possible that they are not candidates for moderating their behavior. You're saying not everyone who has a problem with drinking has to cut it out entirely. Absolutely not. We use AA's yardstick of abstaining for the rest of your life, going to meetings. You know, you can't even have a bite of rum frosting at Christmas time or you're going to go on a bender. But the science has shown us really bulletproof scientific studies since the 1970s. The possibility of even the most severely dependent drinkers learning how to moderate, learning new coping skills, being taught cognitive behavioral therapy. There are anti-craving medications that are used to great effect in countries elsewhere. When I did the story for The Atlantic in 2015, and again, this is three years ago, so maybe it's increased, but only 12 medical schools out of more than 400 even offered courses in addiction medicine. As you've written, something like 10% or more of the people in AA have actually been mandated to go there by a judge. So for the past 30 years, about 12% of AA's own membership are people who don't necessarily want to be there. There are some data that show that 12%, they fare worse than if they were just sent home. I spoke to several judges in my reporting who sheepishly told me, yeah, you know what, I know it really doesn't work for that many people, but we don't know what else to do with these folks. The last time we spoke, you said you had high hopes for the Affordable Care Act. You know, I thought that that was going to be one of the first things that was going to be yanked was the coverage for substance abuse and alcohol treatment, which was an essential benefit. And it hasn't been, in my opinion, in part because the opioid crisis has hit red states very hard. However, Many insurers who are federally mandated to cover treatment, if you go on their websites, they don't list anybody who actually does that. 
We're in the middle of a major crisis, and we have a huge lack of people to treat it. So I do have hopes. We're not in 1935. Our knowledge of the brain of addiction has evolved immensely since that time. So I have hope in the science. I also have hope in the number of medical school students saying, hey, I want to learn about this. Tell me more. Hope in Hollywood? Not so much. There's a character in the Robert Altman movie, The Player, who says he's on his way to an AA meeting. And one of his friends says, oh, I didn't know you had a problem. And the character responds, I don't, but that's where all the deals are made. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think it's ever thus. I hear from my friends in Los Angeles and in Hollywood itself that, you know, it's got a lot of devoted members there. Gabrielle, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Gabrielle Glazer is an investigative journalist and the author of Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Coming up, Dr. Nutt's case for solving our alcohol problem once and for all. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM, and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. We've spent this hour considering how alcohol has been folded into just about every facet of American life. Church, leisure, creation, celebration, recreation, anguish, and remorse. How can we escape its baleful impact? Even when it's not literally in us, it's still of us and all around us. Our friends across the pond struggle with the same question. Experts estimate that over the next five years, 63,000 people will die from heavy drinking in England. But David Nutt, a neuropsychopharmacologist at Imperial College London, may have found an antidote. He's developed a less addictive, less toxic drink that produces a gentle high. For years, he helped steer England's drug policy as a top government advisor, but that relationship was fraught. During my time, we made ketamine illegal, we made GHB illegal, we made crystal meth more illegal. But when we said things like, well, okay, so now there are drugs which should be made less illegal because they're not as harmful as we used to think, drugs like cannabis, the penalty should be reduced. The government was not remotely interested and I just carried on arguing that case and they carried on getting angry with me and eventually uh, they sacked me. You said that any drug less dangerous than alcohol should be available legally, right? Uh, I don't think I said that while I was working for them, but I certainly (laughs) said it subsequently. While I was there, 
And the terms I made to take on the job were that we had to start doing things properly. We had to have some criteria for assessing harm. And over the next nine years, I developed actually two separate scales of harm. Uh, the first was a nine-point scale. But then after publishing that, I was approached by experts and they encouraged us to set up what's called the MCDA approach, multi-criteria decision analysis approach. And that project ended up telling us that there were 16 harms that drugs can do, nine harms to the user and seven harms to society. But as we were doing that, of course, we were applying those criteria to ongoing assessments. And during that time, we revisited ecstasy. It's not as harmful as crack cocaine. It's not as harmful as crystal meth. So it shouldn't be a class A drug, it should be class B. Mm -hmm. And the government said, no, 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 we don't change it because the newspapers won't like it. And then we said cannabis should stay as a class C drug. It's definitely less harmful than class B drugs. And the government said, no, we don't like that. The newspapers want it to be class B. And in the end, we just had this continual tension between what politicians wanted and what the science was telling us. So after you were fired... You released a study that asserted alcohol was actually the most dangerous drug in the UK, more dangerous than heroin or cocaine even. Yes. After being sacked, I then did the study where we used the 16 parameters of harm and we then applied them to 20 drugs. So that particular study, published in The Lancet in 2010, showed that alcohol was the most harmful drug in the UK because the harm to other people was vast. Mm -hmm. Things like traffic accidents, like the cost of the health service, the cost of policing, the lost productivity from hangovers, the, the child abuse, spousal abuse, etc. Alcohol, because of its pervasive use and its disinhibiting effects, is an enormously damaging drug to society. It's not the most harmful drug to the user. I think crack, crystal, heroin were the most dangerous drugs to the users. Mm -hmm. But alcohol, because of its prevalence of use, was the most harmful drug overall. So tell me about the range of feedback you got from other scientists and from the government. Of the 110,000 medical papers published in the last 10 years, the paper itself is in the top 0.3% of all citations. So it's massively cited by other scientists. And actually, we replicated it with a separate group of scientists in Europe. Uh, and they came up with almost the same ranking. So we're pretty sure it's right. So why do you think that alcohol and illegal drugs are treated so differently? Well, because the drinks industry watched how the tobacco industry made a hash of it by claiming that nicotine wasn't addictive and then got really steamrolled when it turned out it was lying. So the drinks industry doesn't say alcohol's not addictive. Used responsibly, it says. It's avoided the confrontation with scientists. The second thing it's done is it lobbies ferociously. It's uh, managed to put huge amounts of money into the pockets of politicians. And it dishes dirt on other drugs like cannabis so that it doesn't have any competition in the marketplace. So how would you change the rules about drugs and alcohol to put them more in line with science? I'll start with what I would do based on what we know from other countries' works. So, for instance, we know that now in your country, in some of your states, and in the Netherlands and Uruguay, that regulated cannabis market works, it's safe, it doesn't cause massive social harm, etc. So I would bring cannabis out of the illegal realm. That's the first thing I'd do. The second thing I would do is I'd actually decriminalize personal possession of all drugs. 
All drugs. All drugs. And let me explain why. Personal possession, right? 90% of people who are caught with drugs in their possession for personal use, their lives will be more affected by the criminal sanction than they would be harmed by the drug. And for the 10% who are actually addicted to the drug, then they've got an illness and putting them in prison or giving them a criminal sanction because they're ill, it seems particularly inhumane. And we know that decriminalizing possession, which is what the Portuguese have done, has huge economic benefits because if you treat people who use drugs as ill rather than as criminals, you save a lot of money. And there's another hidden benefit, which is that if you give someone a criminal record for drug possession, there's very little else they can do in life but deal drugs. So you create an underclass, and and underclasses live on crime and drugs. In the 15 years since they decriminalized drug possession in Portugal, deaths from heroin have fallen to one-third of what they were before because people are in treatment the number of users has gone down, and therefore the number of deaths has gone mm. down. In the same 15 years in Britain, heroin deaths have gone up by a third. We're trying to do what Americans do, which is to criminalize our way out of the problem, and all we do is create more deaths. A couple of years back, you went on the BBC and proposed creating something totally new, a safe alcohol, Arcosynth. Why? Most of my professional career, I have been involved in trying to reduce the harms of alcohol. Back in the late 70s, 80s, I kind of developed an antidote to alcohol. I could sober up rats that were very drunk. But then about 10 years ago, I realized whatever you did, you could never get rid of the intrinsic harms of alcohol because it's metabolized to acetaldehyde, and acetaldehyde is a toxic substance. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever we do, if I can sober people up, the acetaldehyde is still pickling their liver if I stop them having hangovers, the acetaldehyde still damaging their brain. Having spent 30 years looking at the pharmacology of alcohol, I realized there were substances out there that actually could replicate some of the positive effects of alcohol, but be much, much less harmful. So what kind of reaction did you get to your announcement? I got some newspapers calling me another the nutty professor and other people saying, you know, this is a fantastic vision. The problem is I didn't get any money. I can't get money from governments to do this. There are 4 million premature deaths a year from alcohol. If we switched everyone to Arcosynth, we'd save more people dying than eliminating malaria, tuberculosis, and meningitis in the world. So it would be a massive health benefit, but it's just too left field for governments to invest. So I'm looking for private investors. You know, the way we respond to alcohol is so subjective. Some of us get happy. Some of us get hostile. Do you know how people would react to Alka-Synth? Well, we've tested it on fair numbers of people, and uh, most people get relaxed and happy. You know, there will always be some individuals who will have idiosyncratic reactions. You can't avoid that. But the good thing is it's a lot safer. You can't overdose on it. It's not going to kill you. I mean, we lose three young people a week in Britain from alcohol poisoning. In the States, you must probably lose 30 or 40. So we can put ourselves in a position where we do have a massive, massive reduction in harm. Some of your colleagues, when you made the announcement, dismissed the idea as just scientifically infeasible. They're wrong. We've tested it. We have a number of substances which are enjoyed as much as 
a glass or two of wine, you know, you're not going to get completely out of your head on them. People who want to be completely blasted aren't going to go for this, but people who would want to have a mellow, pleasant, sociable evening with their friends are. What if you take too much? Yeah, well, very cleverly, we've worked out how to plateau out the effect. So if you take too much, you're just wasting your money because the effect doesn't go on, unlike with alcohol, which just builds up and builds up till it kills you. I suspect there are a lot of people out there who would quite like the pleasurable effects of alcohol, but they don't want the calories, which, of course, are huge in alcohol. Our drink has very few calories. But also they don't want to damage their body or put their body at risk. So I think the population will be very welcoming of this. How does it taste? tastes like whatever you want to put it in. So you choose your favorite cocktail and we put it in there. It's a mixer. You've said that we have a hostility toward drug innovation. Why do you think so? I mean, isn't there money in this? I mean, the drinks industry knows it's going to come, but it's going to fight tooth and nail to stop it. Until it starts producing it. Exactly. It's just like there's e-cigarettes. Once they realize that people want safer cigarettes, the industry will then switch. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago that Mm -hmm. Corona, the people that make Mexican beer, Corona, Mm They took out a £200 million share of a cannabis company in Canada with a view to making cannabis drinks. So I think that the alcohol industry realizes the future is going to be much more complex. So how many evenings have you spent by the fire with a nice, hot Alka-Synth toddy? I prefer it with ice in it, but (laughs) quite a few. But I never thought about it. It probably would go into a nice glass of hot milk as well. Do you really think that this is going to work? You say that in a couple of months, there'll be a patent out there. Do you think this will actually get to market? Yep. You do? It will. It'll do it in various uh, interesting places, like, for instance, the Middle East, where alcohol is forbidden. Huge, huge market there. China, half of all the alcohol sales in the world are in China. Chinese government is desperate. We're working with the Chinese government at present, trying to work out ways in which we could minimize the damage to the Chinese economy of our drinking. There are smart places out there that will accept this enthusiastically, I'm certain. What about UK and the States? I think UK is really, we're very backward. But uh, I think the US, with your more rational approach in many states to recreational cannabis, there's no conceivable reason, well, intellectual reason, why you wouldn't then support a safer alcohol, would you? I mean, you've been rational about cannabis. Maybe you'll be rational about this. David, thank you very much. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. David Nutt is the director of the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit in the Division of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. This week's show was pitched to us by Mary Harris and Christopher Johnson from WNYC's Health Desk. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan, Isaac Napel, and Philip Yiannopoulos. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Sam Baer. Thanks also to Andy Lancet, head of the WNYC Archives. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.